black, you're white. Now what? What if I say the wrong thing? You probably will. Who doesn't? But I'll do my best to listen. Maybe if we're humble enough to listen to each other. Maybe if we're brave enough to lean into those difficult conversations. We might. We could. Come up with some answers. Make some real progress. Discover how much we have in common. And appreciate our differences. Now you're talking. I'm David Conley, communications consultant. And I'm Chris Thurber, clinical psychologist. And welcome to another episode of I'm Black, You're White, Now What? And uh, we are blessed tonight to have two great guests with us, and we're going to have a great conversation. Uh, we have uh, Ken Mendes and Joshua Conley with us, and we're going to be, uh, like I said, having a really great conversation about just kind of um, young people's perspective, a student's perspective on a lot of what's going on and uh, some takeaways on how things can improve, you know, going forward uh, for the future. But before we get to that, uh, Chris, let's kind of talk like we do sometimes about our previous episode. I think uh, last time it was just the two of us, and, and mm-hmm. God help the audience for that. Um, <laughs> but, I, don't, I don't think our wives have listened to that episode. But No, I don't think so. They think they hear enough of us, uh, you know, going <laughs> in life, period. Um but no, I thought it was, uh, you know, uh, as usual, a great conversation. I always enjoy talking with you, but, um, it, it kind of is a great lead in, uh, to today's episode. We were talking just about uh, how easily it is to, to kind of be misunderstood yeah. and, uh, to have some trigger things be more the conversation, like the point of your conversation being hijacked by, uh, some triggers. And things that will uh, take it in another direction and make it now be about something else instead of the important issue that was initially brought up and how much that impedes any sort of progress between people in general. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, one of the things that you and I spoke about in that last episode was the tension that exists not very deep beneath the surface or for some people it's right on the surface and it -hmm. just makes interactions conversations that have to do with social justice a little bit fraught or um high risk kinds of interactions at risk for being misunderstood at risk for being uh tense and derailed by our trying to call the other person out on, Mm -hmm. well, wait a minute, you did this, you did that. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I thought about our conversation and we, we said several times in different ways, how important it is that people enter those conversations, assuming that um, the other person has their best interests in mind, that, that there may be disagreements, but you're going to go at it. You know, I think David and I are going to have this conversation and I'm going to begin with the assumption that, he's he has good intentions mm-hmm. um and i think you know when you know you're going into a conversation like that um and when it becomes very emotional recognizing that you know this this might not be about the two of us this might be right. about the larger systems or this might be about um our fears and and being able to say that being able to state that is so important but th- there's no such thing as a perfect interaction there are going to be all kinds of missteps and we say that in our intro and you know had a chance to live it out um a couple of weeks ago so i was i was grateful david for your uh candid feedback for me about you know how i was misunderstood and i think we you know people can do that then we can then i think we can make some headway 
And I think once you once you are, if everybody then, you know, sort of does it like you were just saying, with the intention of actually being understood and understanding the other person. Um, and, and first, just realizing that when you're having the conversation, um, the person who's bringing up that issue, their issue is uh, an issue that's worthy of being discussed and is a valid issue. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes the reason, you know, we deflect is just sort of our our fear of, of actually delving into that and having that conversation. So we want to kind of, I don't know, like make, uh, make the conversation about something that may be a little more comfortable for me, you know, mm-hmm. as, as opposed. So I, you know, I think it was great, um, for us to get that understanding for me as well as for you. And, yes. and uh, yeah. And then to take that forward. And I think if we do in our circles, then hopefully it grows and grows and, create some positive change um and and then more into a segue into this evening um i was having uh you know sort of a brief conversation with uh with one of our guests uh joshua conley who was saying that um that oftentimes he finds that people make sort of knee-jerk responses to things that are said as opposed to actually saying hey let me think about that or let me go and actually do the research on that and look into it and see uh, if I can broaden my perspective after this conversation for a follow-up conversation or um, just to broaden my knowledge, you know, period. Instead, they come back with, you know, some uh, knee-jerk response and, and then everybody starts talking uh, out of ignorance. You know, yeah. That. And but, our other guest, uh, Ken Mendes, and we'll have both of you introduce yourselves in just a moment. Um, I, full disclosure, met this morning at a webinar Mm -hmm. I attended at Phillips Exeter, the school where I work, and Ken and some of the other guests were talking about the reaction that they've gotten here in New Hampshire. Ken and I Mm -hmm. live, you know, in the same seacoast area of New Hampshire in a state that is, you know, Ken reminded us is 96% white. If you're going to be involved in anti-black racism efforts, if you're going to be involved in social justice, uh, you are interestingly and painfully, I think, going to run up against some people whose knee-jerk reaction is, you know, we kind of like New Hampshire the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so we're, we're really interested to hear the, the two of you share your perspectives. Uh, Joshua, could you begin by introducing yourself to our listeners, and then we'll move to Ken and then start our four-way conversation. Yes, sir. Uh, My name is Joshua Conley. I am a sophomore at the University of Missouri-St. Louis, and I am studying political science. I'm minoring in criminal justice, and that uh, essentially became the catalyst for my involvement in in politics, my interest in politics, social justice, and race relations and everything under the sun. Uh, my goal is to never ever claim that I know uh, uh, a whole lot about a topic or, or claim to be an expert. Uh, my goal has always been ever since I started uh, on the path that I feel like I'm on is to have conversations with people uh, and act in dialogue that produces solutions uh, simply so that we can all just see each other as people, uh, not black, white, Asian, Hispanic, uh, I feel as though those aspects of us should be celebrated. Uh, that's what makes uh, life pretty good, in my opinion, is the differences 
and how we can interact with each other in that sense, as opposed to I am black and someone else is white. Now we have to be enemies or, or we have to be opposition or we have to be on opposing sides. So that's my goal. Uh, I appreciate you guys having me on and I hope to be able to convey that uh, in, in, in some way uh, this evening. Thank you. Welcome. Ken. Right. My name is Ken Mendes and uh, I chair the board of directors of Racial Unity. The organization was founded five years ago. Uh, but I think before I go into telling you a little bit about why I'm doing this, my background has been in working for corporate uh, companies. I started off as a gun runner. I, I say that uh, with uh, humor, saying that I was working in defense contracting, building Patriot missiles, cruise missiles, and those kinds of things, So, and testing the results of those. From there, I later on joined uh, the pharmaceutical company and, and helped them modernize their manufacturing process by bringing the technology that the military had into, into manufacturing uh, pharmaceuticals and things like that. So I've learned a lot from, from those jobs in, in when I go into an area and I look at a problem and I try to figure out what's wrong with uh, you know, a manufacturing process. So I have to dig deep into finding out the root cause, but I, but I know one thing, that the people that work there are the ones that have the answer. So when I came to New Hampshire, when I opened up the newspaper and saw the superintendent of school saying, we do not have a diversity problem, he's right, because we are 96% white. But the kids yeah. are going to live in a diverse community. A lot of the children, the kids, once they graduate from high school, go to the local university or go to a university you know, of their choice someplace, and guess what? They're going to run into all kinds of different races. And, and so I said, I don't want my children or my grandchildren uh, no, going out into the world and not knowing how to deal with other people. So how do I bring that solution to them in the schools? And that's what got me working with the schools and trying to educate and bring about change uh, in what we, so that our children are the ones I have put a lot of, uh, you know, the young people, they're the ones that are gonna bring about the change. Mm -hmm. We just have mm -hmm. to help them uh, do that. It's fascinating. You, you were uh, a systems engineer uh, working in very technical fields, and now you're kind of social engineer. Good way to put it. Yes. Yeah, because uh, the, uh, it's working with different people. And each, yeah. like you mentioned, each one has their own you know, perspective. And you can go into a group and then there's people that want to learn, people that know something about the subject you know, of race and diversity and exclusion. And then the, uh, and we have to balance it because each one is at a different level of that learning yeah. process. Uh, and, and I found that, you know, if somebody comes into a meeting, gung-ho with all kinds of ideas, but they've lost the audience because the audience doesn't, you know, not where they are in terms of their understanding of the topic. Uh, yeah. mm -hmm. and, and, and so communication, like you mentioned, is so, so important because what I see in my, my circle of uh, the work is that I have a lot of uh, people in the organization that want to volunteer that are much older, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I know the ideas of how I'm going to change is gonna to have to come from the young people as well, because I want to reach them. 
And, and so, you know, that is this technology challenge that we have with people. And, you know, people are looking at solutions from an old perspective. And I, I want to bring out the young people because most of the programs that we uh, conduct at Racial Unity Team addresses the schools and the young people. And we can mm-hmm. talk about some of those projects as well. Mm-hmm. So, Jack, I'm curious from your perspective um, at you know, at the University of Missouri or the schools you went to prior to that, what is the difference between the students who are eager to be engaged in something socially responsible or, you know, positive social change, whatever their political leanings, and, and the ones who aren't? Like, who? Um, what are, what's the it, difference? I think it's... Uh is rooted in the education of what uh, issue or issues you would like to pursue or, or that the ones you have interest in. Uh, for me personally, uh, my interest in politics came because I essentially was told how to think or, or who to uh, vote for. I wasn't of age at the time, but who I should vote for in a hypothetical situation, uh, which propelled me to do the research, to educate myself, to separate myself from a, a group of of individuals who are fixated in, in one uh, ideology, uh, simply because that can't produce results because that's how this country has been run, in my opinion, uh, from my analysis, uh, ever since it's, uh, it, it began. Uh, so simply educating uh, yourself uh, for African-Americans, white people, uh, regardless, the, the responsibility to educate yourself if you want to get into politics or you want to have a voice in regards to race relations, it is not specific to any race, gender, religion, or anything. I feel as though it's just a necessity for everybody. Uh, I have been on the receiving end uh, of many people uh, uh, claiming that they don't want to uh, be associated with me anymore or, or to not be friends anymore or, or anything like that because of my political views or, or because of how I see the world. But the difference has always been is that we are so used to, this is how black people and I, and it, it's all people, but specifically because I am African-American, this is how a black person should think if they go against that mold, there must be something wrong with them. And mm. that is not the case at all. I have simply just educated myself. And that is what I, uh, I aim to do in, in my quest to, to, to move further within politics. That's what I aim to show everybody who's of my age, of my, of my race. And, and with just within this, uh, the African-American community is, it is to just educate yourself because there's a lot of information out there that could really open up your eyes to, to see the world from a, from a different perspective that doesn't follow the standard, uh, blueprint for how it normally, for, for what it means to be black in America. So I think that's the the main component is just education and figuring out what it is that you believe in, standing firm on it, but then also being open to to see other people's uh, opinions, educated opinions, educated standpoints on on a specific topic. Let me ask you, though, and and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I just want to uh, sort of as a follow-up to what you were saying. And to be clear, because it sounds... When I hear you, it sounds like you're saying something, so I don't want to make a knee-jerk reaction. But um, are you saying that you educated yourself and you came to this conclusion, but before that you felt like the people who were telling you what you should be feeling were not educated? 
Uh, no. I feel as though the people, uh, because the main people who were uh, expressing uh, any political view or rhetoric to me were teachers, uh, faculty. I feel as though they're educated, but it, it's in the sense where they want to educate themselves to make sure that they don't uh, look stupid or, or look out of place in their ideology. What I plan to do, and I and, I, and this is my goal uh, as long as I live, is to educate myself uh, to the point where I can get people to, 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 to open their eyes to all different kinds of possibilities. Uh, because the, the, the specific teacher that got me into politics um, w w knew what he was talking about in terms of who he supported or how he saw the world, but it was simply to get me to believe that as well. That is never my goal. If someone wants mm. to disagree with me, that is perfectly fine. But if I can't be frank with a, a person, if we can't have uh, uh, blunt conversations uh, that, you know, uh, are, are a result of the education that, that we've uh, acquired uh, based on uh, someone else teaching us or us doing the research ourselves, I find that as an issue. And, and that is my goal is to move past that where I can educate myself and then express that to other people in a sense where you can believe this, you can believe that, you can agree with me or disagree with me. But as long as you are educated to the point where we're not, we're not being ignorant or hateful or spiteful to each other. That, that's my goal 100%. What I find fascinating is the parallels between, Joshua, your openness to other people's perspectives and your passion for gathering information, learning about things. And what Ken said earlier about reading that the, you know, former school superintendent in our, you know, area of Seacoast, New Hampshire said, we don't have a diversity problem. And the irony of that being, yes, in a state that's 96% white, the fascinating thing about what you said, Ken, and I hope I'm not misquoting you, so correct me if I'm wrong, but it was like, well, I'm not just going to you know, go to the superintendent and say, why do you have any idea how sort of myopic that is? Or like, I understand what you're saying, but let's put this in a different right. perspective. You said, that's a guy I need to talk to. That's Those are the people, the solution is here. That's why you wanted to, a lot of people would say, not going to do any social justice work in New Hampshire. Have you been to New Hampshire? <laughs> and you it, embraced it. You embraced it like Joshua is. What's that about? Well, that's, that's interesting because I realized that my background gives me a different perspective on life and diversity and inclusion. And if you are brought up in, you know, uh, you go to, I've lived in rural, rural America, so I, I see the difference. People that have traveled are much more, uh, informed about you know how the, how the world and the economy the economics of the world works and things like that we all depend on each other so if you are not outside of uh, New Hampshire you're going to have this perspective of I've got everything here I'm happy mm. I don't need anything else right but now you have to open their eyes and say but you may be missing something mm. right uh, and, and that's really happy because I know in my the work I do there are people that are tired. Uh, mm -hmm. I, and I'll be frank, you know, uh, we, we have a meeting, we want conversation, we're hoping that, uh, you know, we have a good mix of people and to have a really good conversation. When I first came to New Hampshire, it was very difficult for me because I said, I need some people of color in my meeting. 
to give me a different perspective, bring the Native Americans, bring the Blacks. And then I realized one thing clear in my mind that I would not have realized is that people are tired. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to, especially to the Blacks, they're tired of having to live the, uh, the, the prejudice and the racial issues of every day. So they don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Talking about it is a lot of work and, and going. So wait a minute. Oh, it educated me that I have to approach it in a different fashion. I just can't expect people to share their story with me because they're reliving the racial pain that they've gone through. So, so I'm very sensitive to, you know, yeah. where people are coming from. And, 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 you know, if somebody doesn't want to talk, that's fine. You know, we'll have a conversation some other time. I, I got to build, con- I have to build relationships and then get into the harder topics with anybody. And uh, I found that work because uh, the new superintendent of schools, uh, David Ryan, SAU 16, he's a champion. He understands, he understands white privilege. But I know blacks and myself understand it more than they do because we live that, uh, you know, uh, that disadvantage in life. But somebody, and so it's, People, I find it at different levels, so you can't really, uh, you know, it's a lot of work. It's a lot yeah. of work. For me, it's, it's a tremendous amount of work, and anybody getting into social justice work, it, it's, it's a 24-7 kind of deal for me. And, <laughs> and I'm saying, wait a minute, I thought I retired. <laughs> <laughs> Working harder well, now than I was then. Career yeah, number but, two. And I have to, yeah. I know David's got a question, but I, I just have to... This is like intermission moment of levity. I have to know when you were working for the Raytheon or whatever company was making Patriot missiles. And did anyone ever crack the joke around the lunch table? Like this is rocket science. Uh, I'll be like it. No, no, it, it didn't see. I, I was in a very unique position, and I think a lot of Asians are in that. Uh, they don't know what to where to put us. Mm. You know, we're, we're not black, we're not white, we're we we're, we're somebody else. So, so, so you ignore that person, mm. and you you begin to do whatever you oh, behave wow. the way you really want to. Yeah, now, yeah. Uh, and I've I've been in conversations. Like, Wait a minute, this is not for me to hear, mm. right? Because they, they have not recognized that I might be offended by, on, for somebody else or for myself. How can you talk that way? It's not nice. Um, and so my job would be to say, you know what, I'm out of here. You guys talk that way. I don't want to be part of you. Right? Uh, so it happens in, it doesn't matter where you work. Uh, That's a good I, point. I find that, yeah. And, and, and I think I've been blessed by that perspective because I can sit down and talk to a white person. I can sit down and talk to a black person and, and treat me with respect like I was just somebody that, you know, they want to have a conversation with me. Mm-hmm. And that's a gift that allows me then to understand different uh, cultures. And the racial unity team looks at all different uh, disadvantaged people. If you go back to the history of uh, Exeter, the Native Americans, the Abenakis and the Swamscott were driven out uh, way back, were displaced by mm-hmm. the white settlers, right? Then came uh, the free uh, 
African Americans and native uh, and the slaves, and they were driven out, right? And what is amazing to me is the free African Americans in Exeter were educated. They went to the, the local schools, right? But the businesses wouldn't hire them. They would hire new immigrants who were white, who uh, rented homes, uh, rooms in the African American houses, but the African Americans couldn't. So New Hampshire has had a very interesting way of displacing people of minority, even the Chinese Americans with the uh, with the Exclusion Act, the Chinese Exclusion Act didn't allow them to bring you know their families in here, and it goes on even today. Hmm. I mean, I can tell you stories that really make really make me angry. And uh, and what I find is troubling is that even though the uh, you know you're supposed to report racial crimes and things like that in the state, people are not doing that. And in one case, a real estate incident, rather than uh, you know indicate that a, a, a family looking to buy a house was discriminated against, the police had to. If you look for a police report, it'll be under trespassing. Hmm. Right, so you know, you know, I, I'm a data guy. I like to look at data and see where do I find problems and uh, solve them. When when you report something as trespassing, which is a housing discrimination problem, I would never find it in the police report. No, mm-hmm. and this is what we see. I looked at data, and I, I find it very difficult to to get to the root cause. So conversation with people uh, is so important for me. I'm interested in both you guys' uh, processes. So this next question is is for you, uh, you both, but just in the ways that you've described already. I'd like to ask Ken, what kind of uh, programs uh, are you guys doing in the schools there in New Hampshire? And for Joshua, that uh, similar question is when you start talking about uh, research that shapes your view and your perspective, I'd like to know, you know, what kind of research that is or an example of a situation where uh, you, you know, were told you should be thinking this way, but you did some research that uh, showed you something else and and changed or shaped your worldview. So, uh, Ken, first, what kind of programs are you guys doing there in New Hampshire and what kind of impact does that have? Right. At the school level, we realized that the, um, the social studies curriculum is not telling the true story of American history. We're, you know, if you look at the social studies curriculum, it excludes the genocides of the Native Americans. It excludes the genocides of the African Americans. Nothing is talked about in those. And, and, and even to the point of what I found is that teachers want to tell the truth about the history of America, but they are afraid to. A good, good example is Thanksgiving. Right? Mm-hmm. The true story of Thanksgiving is not what you learn in school, right? But they are afraid to teach the true story of Thanksgiving because the kids will go home and say, Mommy, I learned this in school. And guess what? The parents will be right there. And they have nothing to back them up. The curriculum doesn't reflect the true history. Mm-hmm. So the task that we are facing is we've got to rewrite the t- curriculum, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have been working with the uh, Department of Education uh, to redraft the curriculum, and uh, and I, you know, it's been two years since we, you know, got involved, and you know, uh, 
put some input in there. So now I'm, go I'm seeing things like Native Americans and African American history and things like that. But with COVID-19, it's sitting on the desk of the uh, uh, Commission of Education, mm -hmm. waiting to be released for public review. But mm. curriculum changes are very important. So we continue to work with the schools. Uh, you know, teachers call us up and say, we've got this special project. We'd like to talk about it. And I don't know whether you heard about the, uh, the Dover School incident where they played the uh, Christmas jingle. Mm. Uh, mm. What, some social study teacher had a project that they wanted to have in the high school, but it went viral. You know, mm. he was doing the right thing, trying to educate the children, but the media picked it up. And so teachers are afraid when they go into creating projects, social studies projects for schools. So they, they come and consult with us to help us, uh, uh, you know, give them some idea. They bounce things off of us. We, we don't drive them. They want to make sure, okay, have you thought about this? And, we, and so we provide that service. Since we're a nonprofit and our mission is to work with the schools, we do it, you know, free of charge. We, we don't charge them for it and we, give them whatever. So there's a lot of that. Uh, also, what schools are trying to bring into the education process is the appropriate literature for the children, right? So these are what the schools are doing. And we, we have pro projects that, uh, like for example, we have a, a, a music pro project kicking off this summer, uh, this, where we want the ch uh, kids to think about how you remember, you remember the uh, 60s and 70s uh, protest songs, right? Mm -hmm. That uh, we, we want kids to write lyrics to songs uh, to bring about change. And, and so we've got a grant with New Hampshire Humanities for the Arts to bring that project to the schools. And we'll be, that's the most recent one. We also have our, our poetry contests, uh, you know, of diversity, equity, inclusion. Each year we do that. Uh, and, and give them a prize uh, from kindergarten to you know uh, high school, different groups. So, reaching out to the kids, trying to trying to do the things that they want to do, but using the, their talents. So art and poetry and music, uh, uh, some of the some of the projects we we reach, do with schools. And David Ryan and his team have been very helpful in uh, you know introducing it to the uh, teachers and things like that. So we've been making some good headway with the schools and uh, we will be, you know, doing more of that as, as time moves on. That's great. I'm, and I'm so glad that you have the support of Superintendent Ryan. Um, oh, he has to be that way. If yeah. you don't have somebody inside, it would be difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If the, if the, if the teachers are going to implement, uh, something fresh and something more complete and heartfelt and accurate and representative. Um, they, they, they can't go out on a limb lest they be, you know, uh, misunderstood for that. Joshua, what about, uh, you know, David's question for, for you? Tell us a little bit about your work. Okay. Um, uh, so I believe it was about like the research that I've done. Okay. And especially um, so uh, just to remind you of the, the second part, um, a time when you felt somebody was being sort of dogmatic with you, like, this is what you have to think. And, you know, you're putting the, your approach into practice. Yeah, uh, for sure. So uh, uh, initially, uh, 
the former um, in terms of the research that I've done, uh, steps that I've taken uh, more specifically, uh, especially recently, is I applied uh, and uh, thank thankfully got accepted into an internship, uh, a ASUM internship uh, uh, based for the four major Missouri schools, uh, universities, uh, that it, it involves uh, eight students uh, across the state of Missouri who are to act in a nonpartisan way um, to uh, oversee uh, shadow and to help uh, uh, pass legislation in the state of Missouri that will specifically benefit uh, college students. Hmm. Uh, so in the sense of that, I'm excited for that because I can be in an environment where one of the requirements of the internship is to be able to work in a nonpartisan way while still uh, with, without necessarily having to lose yourself. I don't mm -hmm. have to give up who I am just to be able to uh, demonstrate that I can operate in a nonpartisan way. So I am very excited about that because that will uh, for sure uh, cause me to have to do a, a lot of research and, and go into things that I really don't know that much about from another person's perspective. Mm -hmm. And hopefully that uh, I can reciprocate that uh, onto somebody else in, in a sense that they would do the same. Um, now, specifically on how I got there, I guess I would give a, 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 an example and a more recent one as well. This happened last week. Um, one of my uh, friends sent me a, a link to an article that was done about a specific tax code uh, by the president. Um, and the thing that I have an issue with is how influential the news is on uh everyone's opinion not everyone i don't mean to box everyone but a lot of this country's opinions and views are driven by what the news tells you or tells tells them or anybody else the issue is that it's so partisan that uh but their claims are to be unbiased and that they're the most trusted name in the in news whether it be cnn or fox or msnbc or, or any of the major news outlets uh where they claim to just give the facts yet they're so skewed that it becomes very dangerous. So in that sense, um, where I was sent that, I believe it was, I have it pulled up here. It was a, uh, it was an article by the New York Times where they were discussing a tax code uh, uh, that was passed by Donald Trump and it has some information that was skewed. Now I choose, I, uh, if I'm gonna get, uh, if I'm gonna just be as transparent as possible, I try my best to stay in the middle of the political spectrum because I think that both things can be taken from both sides of the aisle to formulate a better America. I don't think that it is, at least from my perspective, I couldn't see myself far left or far right, which means that I will do my due diligence to make sure that I know everything that is that there is to know about the sitting president, about a mayor, about a governor, despite their political affiliation and despite the public opinion about them. And that same thing applies to Donald Trump. Obviously, he's not the most popular president that we've ever had, but even him, I will do my due diligence. Mm -hmm. And in this situation, uh, the New York Times uh, came out with an article that discussed uh, some information about his tax code. Some of the information was slightly faulty, uh, mainly because it was heavily biased and not all the information was there. So I did the research uh, to try to find a non-biased article or a resource that would help me to, to, to convey to some other people who are looking at this article that 
like just to think twice about it or to take it with a grain of salt and then to move forward with that. So I found an article from a website called taxfoundation.org, which is nonpartisan, non-biased. It just simply gives information for a tax code, mm -hmm. uh, for a tax code in question. So the article that I shared on the discussion board uh, for the article, the New York Times article, I shared a link to that article uh, where it, it essentially debunked the information that was in the New York Times article, uh, or at least aligned it to the point where it's in the center. Therefore, it has no bias and you can take with it what you will. And I essentially got, uh, uh, if I'm trying to be as casual as possible, I essentially got dogged out um, <laughs> because the, the, the interpretation that I guess anyone who responded to what I did, what I responded with, was that I am defending Donald Trump because mm. I'm black and that um, I'm supposed to vote Democrat, that that's bad. So I was called, and I have it here, I was specifically called a racist. I was called Uncle Tom. I was called a bigot. I was called anti-black, an idiot, and stupid. And I was told wow. right here that I did not know what I was talking about. Um, mm. Now, I'm not going to take it too personally because I've gone down that route before where I'll go back and forth with somebody and my emotions will start to fluster and the conversation goes haywire. But this is the proof right there, um, at least to me, that it is important for us to do the research because in this context, in no way, shape or form was I claiming to be an expert or was I claiming to know it all. I simply just gave him the due diligence because if I was in that position, which uh, if, if I stay on the, on the straight and narrow, I plan on running for president one day. That's been a goal of mine ever since I started this. So when I get to that point, I would love it if my constituents could give me that same respect to do the due diligence, to carry out the research. If there is a news outlet that is trying to slander my name or, or to uh, uh, express uh, fake news, if you will, for lack of a better term, uh, or, or skew news that, that just goes in their direction to, to show that, hey, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not doing my job right, or, or this is the, the situation when it really isn't. So that's my, uh, that's a personal experience. I guess uh, one more, uh, I'll try to be as quick as possible. Um, uh, recently, uh, I had gotten to a conversation with someone I've been friends with for going on 10 years now. And we have differing political views, but we never got into the, 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 the depths of those, of those details. We've always kind of uh, steered away from that. And eventually we got to that conversation of talking where I tried to see things from both perspectives. My friend, or I guess my former friend now, was very left-leaning and, and, and nothing could phase her on that. So when I expressed my views about how I felt about specific candidates or specific issues, um, she ended our friendship over a text message. Um, and without really hearing me out more, uh, just kind of putting me in a box in a sense. Uh, but the, the thing that I got that I went into that conversation with was research, was information is, and then I'm trying to express it to you, but because we're all so fixated in our factions, whether it be black, white, Democrat, Republican, uh, Asian, Hispanic, we're, we're all so, uh, territorial in a sense when it comes to those, uh, factors that even if I do have the facts, for a lot of people, they won't even want to acknowledge it uh, simply because it doesn't align with their ideology. So those are just a couple of examples. And I'm excited for this internship because it's really going to propel me 
to, to make sure that I am on top of my research and that I'm not cutting any corners when it comes to that and that I'm leaving my emotions at the door because there's a place for them. But when we're trying to get solutions, facts are very important. Um, and the only way to, to acquire the, the real facts is to do as much research as possible. So, Ken, what can, what can, I mean, we're listening to that. It sounds, I mean, he's having those conversations at 19, but I'm having those conversations at 52 with people who are 50 plus, you know, and it doesn't sound much different. So, um, you know, when you start just talking, keeping it with young people, even what is some of the things that you feel or that you're finding um, that we can do to, to just kind of break through a lot of that, that fog that keeps that communication so stunted, you know, because what you have here is a conversation where uh, we're talking about facts and what have you, whether you agree with them or not, where this young man should be able to have this conversation with this young lady or whoever and present facts and people say, oh, okay, well, I learned that about that or here's some counter facts to that. And they actually have a conversation that, you know, doesn't get, uh, so emotional that we end friendships uh, of a decade or more, or what have you. What what is it that you know that we can do practically, or what is being done, maybe in your view, uh, that can can affect that? You know, that's a very interesting topic because uh, I think we, we when we start conversations, we don't establish any ground rules, right? We just jump into it, and before long, we we are you know on one side of the fence, and the other one is on the other side of the fence. And I and I think uh, if you know if, if I'm personally, I'm very quiet and I listen a lot uh, in conversations. They're very important because somebody may have a completely different view from me, and I might they might change my mind. So I, I think I go have to go. Especially when you're dealing with social justice, you have to go into the conversation saying that maybe I don't have all the answers, right? Or you may have all the answers, and then it's your task. But at the end of the day, I think if there, there were ground rules, you know, this is a conversation we had a good discussion. It's not going to impact our friendship. Mm-hmm. I mean, you losing somebody that you know you have known for ten years—that's that's hard. That's a personal blow, right? And and uh, so I think when we go into conversations that are difficult, up front say, you know what? When we leave this conversation, I still respect you, although I might disagree with you. Uh, and, and at least you have already set the ground rules that I may not agree with this person, but you no, know, well, let's have that conversation. But it's it, it's easier said than done. I, I know right. that. Okay, I know that because we jump into conversations and we have this great discussion and before long we're on different sides and then become personal and that's when it's uh, time out you know what we got to do something different i was talk- i think too oh i'm sorry go ahead chris i'm sorry oh, go ahead. no no you go ahead i was just going to say i think in, in my experience too sometimes um and and this is just talking to joshua and, and anybody who's listening might be in that t- sort of situation too i always say um what Ken says, I don't sound as wise saying it, but I always say that too about the ground rules that you kind of need to do that up front. But a lot of times, like you said, we don't, we just kind of jump in. But somewhere in the conversation, you can sort of see 
you know, that switch coming, at least how I gauge it is they'll say something that I say, oh, wait, my I, I disagree with that. And so then I have to say, if I disagree with it, chances are the next thing I'm about to say, they're probably not going to agree with that. Yeah. So I say, hey, listen, let me just I'm going to say this, but, I, you know, I, I don't want I don't mean to offend or anything like that. And I just I'm just offering a different perspective. So perhaps, you know, we can see both sides of this thing. And then I go forward with that. And oftentimes I find myself having to try and reiterate that as the conversation goes forward. And it's easier. It's not foolproof, but it's easier uh, to, to even keep those ground rules going throughout the conversation. Um, you know, once you start noticing that you're about to have this this divergent in, in viewpoint, you know. Uh, oh, yeah. But, yeah. But I'm sorry, Chris, what were you going to say? You said it better. So, oh, okay. uh, absolutely, yeah. That was Joshua, the first time for that. <laughs> uh, Joshua, what 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 do you think about your your fellow students? Um, are they more inclined to um, quickly sort of uh, spiral into getting personal and name calling and 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 classifying? you as this this or this or is there an equal or greater percentage of students that you come in contact with that are like well tell me more mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah uh before i preface this uh i don't ever want to generalize or put anybody in a box um so uh but this is just from my personal experience the overarching uh or overall percentage of people that I come in contact with that are around my age group or, or whatnot uh it typically goes the former uh where mm. where where uh personal feelings uh get involved and shots start being thrown as opposed to um us just having a normal conversation um I think I really really think that is just rooted in uh inexperience or immaturity uh simply because uh number one uh, just because I have a political preference, or let's say if we're being more specific, if I prefer a candidate, that does not mean that I agree with everything he or she does or believes in. It's just whatever I hold near and dear to my heart, let's say the economy, for example. If there is a candidate who can produce better on that front, that is who I'm going to lean more toward. Um, or whether it be immigration or, 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 or social justice or anything like that. Um, and I feel as though that is lost, where if I am having a conversation with somebody and they tend to get, disagree with me, I have to be all in on the side that I, on the side, I guess you will, that I'm, that I'm uh, uh, leaning more toward, which I think is a mistake because um, there's so much to myself and everyone else that I come in contact with that can be unpacked that just doesn't because the conversation ends so abruptly based on the intrusion of personal feelings um mm -hmm. and I, I once again i think the that the more that we mature um i think it's inevitable that that feelings and whatnot are gonna uh surface more often at this level than it is if i'm speaking you know uh to somebody the same person maybe 20 years from now or 20 years down the road um i just think it's inevitable uh simply because uh, influence plays a big role uh, on on kids and young adults. Um, for a lot of kids, uh, their political preference 
nine times out of ten will stem from their parents or their guardians or whatnot. And even if they don't have uh, parents in the household or, or, or good examples, they find it somewhere, whether it be the news or whether it be rappers or, or athletes or anything like that. The influence comes from somewhere. So for, for a lot of people, if you are told uh, by CNN, vote Democrat. Um, if you are told by Fox, vote Republican. A lot of people, because those are the two most popular news outlets in this country, and they, they seep their way into everything, whether it be on the TV, a newspaper, social media, um, it's everywhere. They're, they have the most influence. And, and I don't think that it can be changed until either people have that, the majority of people have that awakening that the media has so much influence or, or, or influencers uh, have so much influence on, on these communities or until somebody, in a, for lack of a better term, checks mm-hmm. these media outlets or these, uh, these influencers um, because it's in music, it's in movies. Where you're told how to behave, where you're told how to think, you're told how to vote, you're told how to interact with people. Um, so for a lot of people who don't have great examples, um, for you know the people who tell you what they believe in, but also explain to you that hey, it's okay to have a differing opinion. It's okay to interact with diff- with people coming from a different angle. If those aren't present, uh, that is very detrimental. Um, and and it, it's it's. Something that I look to to hopefully uh, to hopefully make a change in the older I get, uh, specifically specifically in the black community, the single parent household, uh, mainly for single mothers, uh, it's such a it's at such a high rate in the black community. It, it's very detrimental for for children, not all children, but for a lot of people to have that influence, where where uh, there, there's a, a good example around them. Uh, it just seems to be lacking from my personal uh, experience and, and how I see things. It just seems to be lacking far more than it should be. And that is something that I, that I hopefully look to, to, to mitigate as I go on in my life. I, I so admire your, your integrity. I, if, if I had at 19, if I had had half of your intelligence and your integrity, I think um, I could have, behaved in more uh how do, i don't even know what the word is um i think i could have done more uh, good and contributed more to my peer group um you're setting such a wonderful example for your your classmates your friends in your just relentless pursuit of more information and you know the things that people called you online are you know as ken said conversation stoppers okay that's it you know that's it you got your shot across the bow and um i think that you're you're absolutely right that some of it has to do with maturity and and a kind of um experience having some interactions where there are differences of opinion. I also think, and, and, you know, Ken, I guess I'll, uh, I'll ask you to respond to this because you're, you're older than Joshua. I feel like when people respond in a dogmatic way, or as Joshua said, they, you know, you gotta be all in like you, 
there's no no room for nuance and and joshua is living in a very nuanced headspace he's not going to box people into categories um i think the same thing can happen when people get into you know like david and i are in our 50s and older where it's sort of like you know okay i've i've lived my life i know what i want i don't you know I'm wise to the world. And they there's another reason for their rigidness, right? So, mm. Ken, what do you do when you encounter, you know, people who are my age, David's age or older, and, and they're just in this kind of fixed mindset where there, there isn't room for nuance? What do you say to them? Good question, but I, I want to follow up with a question with Josh, then I'll yeah. get back to it. What was interesting for me is that you talked about uh, you know people looking at Fox News or CNN and and I, I always thought that, and my question to you is I was under the impression that the younger people were much more broad in their in their you know viewing they do a lot of reading and you know Twitter and these kinds of things so they're getting information from all over and when you go back to the older generation they are fixated on one source of information. And so I can see that happening where, you know, people of my generation would say, you know what, this is the way it is because I, I, I got one source of information. But you're t I got the impression that you're saying the same thing happens with the younger generation as well. And even though they have this wider uh, perspective and sources of information to have a, you know, to fact check some of the facts that uh, they are hearing someplace. Um, so... It, it would help me because I struggle with that. Because, you know, in the work I do, we have a mixture of people. And if, if the older people are not using the technology and, you know, and I have people that are not using the technology, and then you don't really have a true picture of the situation that we are facing. And, and, and so for me, you're, what you were saying, I said, is this happening with the younger people too? Yeah, uh, I could I, honestly. I think that people do get a broad um, uh, selection of, of news or, or information, but because of how readily available, uh, like especially social media, because of how much of a powerhouse it has become over the, the last decade or so. Um, it's so easy. It's so easy to go on Twitter and see a headline and then stop it right there because there's a million more right after it. So it, it takes a lot. And it's ironic uh, because of how easy it would be to just click on an article and read it. Um, but it honestly does take a lot to, to look at a tweet, uh, to read the headline, then to go to the link, then to look at that headline, then to look at the byline to look at the date and then to read it all the way through um a specific example is at the start of all this uh coronavirus uh uh stuff i, I think i think i saw it maybe back in like april um there was an article that came out um uh that there were uh that police departments in philadelphia were not arresting uh people who were committing nonviolent crimes that was just the headline so if you are a an aspiring criminal and you read the headline, you're excited because you think that, hey, now I can just go rob and steal and, and do all this stuff like that and not get in trouble. But if you read the entire article, it, it discusses how uh, if you are caught 
committing a crime, your information is going to be taken down. You will be detained. Um, since there is a difference between being detained and being arrested, you will be detained. You will not be arrested. Yet, once we have the, the go-ahead to go forward with that, we will then put out a warrant for your arrest. That is what the article stated. But I had about maybe five people send me that article, and it's like freaking out because they think that anarchy is going to is going to fall upon uh, Philadelphia and then uh, create a domino effect across the United States of America where people are just committing crimes and not getting arrested for it. But because it's so easy to just look at that and just move on to the next headline, the next one that, that talks about something completely different, it just drags your attention to somewhere else, that it, it almost becomes very difficult in a sense to read an article to get that information and then to go to another article from possibly a, an outlet that is across the aisle that might be discussing the same thing and to, and to just compare the two. So this generation does have a lot of information readily available to it, but that it should help. But at the same time that it should help, it, it makes it a lot more difficult to actually, you know, uh, get that, get that across. That is fascinating. Yeah, you know, you mentioned the snippet of, you know, the headline. How, how am I going to get this reader to read this article? Or, or you saw yeah, that little exactly. headline. Exactly. And, and uh, that's an old trick that reporters have been using forever to have people read their articles. But uh, Exactly. Just to get the clicks, you know, because yeah. I don't even think if you go on an article, it can track if you actually read it. As long as you're right. getting clicks, as long as you're turning on the news and, and it, you know, documents that you were on there. You could have been on there for two seconds, saw a headline that the world is on fire. You know, they could have been talking about a a, a globe, like a, a plastic globe that someone set on fire. But that's the headline. So you then you move on and you, you form a thought pattern of how you should proceed. And it just becomes uh, very dangerous from that. From that right. Yeah. In the work I do in terms of communication, you know, I have I have. A lot of retired people because they volunteer, and and I get all kinds of articles from the New York Times from people that on on subject matter, and uh, then I have a group of people that really don't get into any of the social media outlets, so they're not getting the the whole picture. And then the younger people have the snippets; they want information quick and fast. Uh, and uh, so now you got to pull all of this together. And the other thing I notice in the work I do. Most of the women are involved in social justice work. A good mm -hmm. seventy to eighty percent. The men have no interest. We, mm -hmm. You know, we we had a, a seminar on uh, colorism. Colorism is uh, you know a phenomenon that has been around forever. Where within a race, right, the lighter you are, the preferred you are. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and this is not just an African American issue. It is a worldwide issue. Right. So I've been and, telling and, and, Joshua for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a worldwide issue. So and, and so the lighter skin you are of a certain race, the, the more preferred you are. OK. And, and, and it helps you in so many different ways. OK, so women are interested and mostly it's the women that are more concerned about the color of their skin, at least at least from Asia and places like and I know in the U.S. too, you know, the men are not so much that but within that social structure you know you have these kinds of communications going on and people are you know jockeying for position in in and it it becomes 
the whole subject of uh, social justice is becoming more complex in yeah. today. It's not so much black and white. You know, now you bring in the Asians, you bring in the yeah. Native Americans into the community. And, uh, and, and that's why, for me, I think if you understand your ethnicity, and, and this is where you know, a lot of uh, people of color do. For white, there's one race, white. But if you think about it, the whites have an ancestry that's very unique. And if we could get people to be very, when I, when I uh, took a DNA test, I thought, you know, I was, I was born in Malaysia, but that doesn't tell the whole story. My, my, my ancestors from Sri Lanka. So Sri Lanka is an island to the south of India. So and my name is Mendes. Okay, Mendes, wait a minute. That may be Portuguese or Spanish, right? Well, the Portuguese were in the Far East in the 1400s, 14, 150 years, uh, the island of Sri Lanka was uh, dominated by the Portuguese, right? So maybe, and I always thought that I may have Portuguese blood until I took a DNA test. 96% from the subcontinent of India. No European blood, no Portuguese influence, nothing. What it did for me is gave me pride in who I am. I got, I, you know, I got my roots, so to speak, right? I got it defined for me. And, and, and it gave me a completely different perspective on the person I am. Mm. And I think, I'll, I know I'm, I'm doing the same thing with my children, teaching them their ancestry, because it's so important. Uh, and, and I think if once we as an uh, you know, individual or a nation begin to appreciate who we are, you know, we're not colorblind. I am different than you are, and you are different from so-and-so. And we have to identify that, that we are different. Mm-hmm. But yet, we are the same in terms of, you know, we are human beings, right? Exactly. So don't hide the color of your skin. Don't, you know, say this, you know, I'm colorblind. Is When it comes to social justice, saying you're colorblind is not addressing the issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, that communication doesn't work anymore. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it's well, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Ken. No, no, no. It's interesting from my perspective, and I want to share that with you because it energized me mm-hmm. in the work I'm doing now. Well, that's what, and I can tell, and 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 uh, I know we're almost out of time, uh, but my closing comment will be, again, how inspiring it is to listen to Joshua, to listen to Ken, and hear the the enthusiasm, the energy in your in your voices. Again, whether you're, you know, a freshman in college or university, whether you're retired and you're doing, you know, I mean, Ken, you co-founded this 501c3 that's working with the public school system to revise the curriculum and provide consultation to teachers. Um, But what I'm struck with and so impressed by and so grateful for is the willingness that you both have to go into depth and to not prejudge. I mean, that's the word prejudice, right? We're just going to say that this is what it is based on more superficial characteristics. Like Joshua was talking about the, yes, he and his peers have access to a broad range of information, but not very many people are going into great depth to learn what's really the story. And I hope that, uh, 
people can see the value of doing that. My concern is that in all of this social justice work, the reason that there's instant name calling, the reason that that people come to blows literally and figuratively so quickly is because it it there's something about it that's very threatening to them as people, you know, like, wow, if what David is saying is right, then there's something about me I'm going to have to change. Well, some people are not willing to even entertain that possibility. Or, you know, if what David is saying is right, then what I just said might not be right. And and I, I just, it takes a kind of humility that, and I'm not saying I'm the most humble person in the world either. I, I'm just saying the more that someone has that openness, the more chance we have. But boy, if, if, if you're not fighting to understand and instead you're fighting to win an argument, I think (laughs) your ship is sunk from the beginning, but now I'll be quiet and let David close things out. Or you may have another question, but I, I, you you guys are fantastic. I'm really inspired. Let me just say, I appreciate um, both you guys. And and like Chris said, you're both inspiring, especially from different uh, perspectives and I appreciate and am uh, happy about the work that's being done uh, on both fronts for our future and for young people and so that's great but uh, I will say a couple things one um, I think when you're dealing with some of the issues that we're talking about it's important to understand and a lot of times we want to forget it just the monumental emotional weight that comes with race relations in the United States. And for people to think that some legislation or something like that will wipe that away, get rid of it, and all will be right with the world without addressing the hearts and minds of people. I don't know, there's something that's sort of anemic about that approach. So I, I say that to say when you go into these conversations, you do have to understand that some of the knee-jerk reactions, some of the name-calling, some of the vitriol in it is because it's a very emotional issue for people and emotional to a depth that is beyond their age, that beyond their, their time on this earth. So, and and therefore beyond their understanding even a lot of times, and that's on both sides of it, white people, black people, uh, that's, you know, Asian people, everybody from, has, especially in the United States, has had to deal with some very, very horrible things with regard to race relations, and you cannot address that without tripping over some of those. Um, and so when you talk, even Joshua, you're going against the current sometimes when you're talking about going against, you know, people thinking that you should be thinking this way politically or whatever. But on the other side of that, there are people who are doing that same thing and mm-hmm. telling folks that, you know, what they've gone through as a race uh, is over and and they should get to tell you that you should be healed when they mm-hmm. have to suffer what you have to suffer. That's tough for people who have to suffer mm-hmm. that to deal with and you oh, yeah. start telling me that because I want to help my people that I'm somehow Marxist or socialist, 
mm-hmm. or that I'm not American because I'm saying that America should be held to the ideals that which I was taught in school and which I fought for in this country, mm-hmm. uh, then there's some emotional response that's going to come back from that. So I think if you're going into those conversations and you're going to have a difficult point of view uh, with it, that you do have to understand that that emotion is going to be there. You have to understand where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. If you go in without that and think it's going to all be academic, then you're taking a knife to a gunfight. You know, exactly. this is not a good idea. Mm-hmm. So uh, I just would encourage you as you go forward to understand that, that what you're talking mm-hmm. about is some bomb squad work. It is not. You know, anything short of that is bomb squad work. And if you hit the wrong wire, kaboom, you know. Yeah. And mm-hmm. so, uh, you know, I. but I applaud you. And, and definitely, uh, Ken, I applaud you as well for, uh, you know, the scope of what you have to do uh, with regard to changing some of that curriculum and things like that in, in New Hampshire. And uh, I encourage you both keep going because we need all of what you're doing. And, uh, and uh, you know. I'm proud of you both. So thank you very much. And, thank, and you. thank you for being guests on the show and being very candid uh, and open with us both. And we appreciate that. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Thank you for listening to I'm Black, You're White, Now What? You can find more episodes on the podcast channel, Teaching What It Takes, available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. To learn more about the work I do, visit www.preparingthepath.com. And to learn more about the work I do, visit drchristherber.com.